Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. So in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so Lord, we ask you to bless us as we continue on through the Bible and we look at the book of Romans. Help us to understand uh, the uh, profoundness of Paul's teaching, but also to take to heart the um, gospel message which he offers us today and how he calls us to conversion through Christ to appreciate the many gifts that he gives us through his sacrifice, through the cross, and through his resurrection. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, the book of Romans, as most of you probably know, is probably uh, the most quoted book of St. Paul. And it seems that, um, especially in the Protestant tradition, they love the book of Romans. It's something that tends to come up a lot. And, you know, I don't say that being mean. I love the book of Romans, too. You know, it's, uh, it's Paul's most complete um, letter. Most letters that Paul wrote, he wrote concerning particular issues. He was writing to particular churches. Um, after the fact, he'd write a letter back to them. Romans was the um, letter that he wrote even before he went. And so he wanted to kind of set the groundwork so that when he got there, everything was going to go according to his plan. And so it was a a very well thought out and a very well developed letter of all the letters. It's probably the most um, theological, profound, and developed of the letters. And so with that in mind, I'm just going to get right into it. So I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, just the overview of what the Book of Romans is all about. Um, First of all, the style of writing, it is a letter but in the midst of this letter, he, he kind of does this, like, debate. And so he will quote something saying, well, does that mean that we're supposed to do this? And then he'll answer himself, of course not. You know, we're not supposed to do that. And then he'll kind of, you know, expound on that. But the reason is, it's a style of writing, and uh, it's an imaginary argument. So you, you're writing a letter, and you're thinking about the objections to your argument, and the objections, objections to your argument would be the imaginary person who are going to say, yes, but what about this? And then you just bring it up ahead of time, and then you answer those objections. It's uh, interlocutor is, is the official name of that. And so just imagine when, when you hear Paul ask questions such as, well, what does this mean? We're supposed to sin all the more? Well, absolutely not. You know? So he asks the question as if there's a third party somewhere observing him, asking questions, and then he answers those questions. Well, that helps him to be able to answer what would be common, common objectives, um, objections to his writing. And he's kind of following a progression down there. So he does have this mental argument going on. The, the main issue here is, in the Church of Rome, was kind of a unique situation in some ways, but it really was a, a perfect grounds for him to be able to expound on his um, understanding that the gospel is not just for Jews, it's not just for Jewish Christians, but it's for all people who believe 
especially those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's the ongoing argument about how Jewish you need to be to be able to accept the gospel. How much of the law do you need to follow? And I mean law is the Mosaic law. And how necessary is it that the Gentiles specifically should have to incorporate the law into you know, their religious practice? And then, of course, there's the bigger question now, because Romans comes a little later than Galatians and some of the other letters. So the bigger question is, in general, where does the law fit in the Christian dispensation? Um, that means, you know, well, we have the Mosaic law, and Jews are very comfortable with that law, and they're following that law, but they're also following this new law of Christ. So where do the two laws fit? You know, how does that all work together? And so he's starting to answer a lot of those questions in a lot more detail. So what he basically says is that we are saved through Christ and not works of the law. Now, sometimes people will try to take that works of the law and make it seem like works, good deeds, right? So we're saved by faith, not by good deeds. But that's not really what St. Paul's talking about. You can stretch it to, to cover that, but primarily what what St. Paul's talking about is he's talking about these works of the law that refer to those works of the Jewish Torah, the Jewish law. So that would include dietary, ritual, purification, things like that. Uh, for example, like you can't eat pork, you can't eat fish unless it has scales on it. And so that, those would be laws. And so if we're saved by the law, you know, think about the Mosaic law, because a good Jew would think that well, you know, if we're following the law perfectly, then, you know, we are part of God's chosen people. We will be rewarded with heaven. That was kind of a common um, conception. And St. Paul is saying, like, actually, all those different rituals and all those different purification rites, um, all the dietary laws, none of that will save. It has no power to save. It might be evidence of, of your connection with God as the chosen people, it might point you and lead you to know what sin is all about, but it cannot save. Jesus, Jesus is the one who saves. So we're saved actually through faith in him. Now that doesn't mean we don't do good deeds. It doesn't mean we don't live out our faith. We're not reborn in Christ and live differently. We don't have that freedom in Christ to do good because we do. See, he's referring to specifically those Old Testament laws that have been superseded by the New Testament law of Christ. Okay, so we're going to get a little bit more into that, but just kind of get the general thing, because that's what he's addressing here. He's trying to let, um, historically, he's trying to let the, uh, um, the Jewish Christians as well as the Gentile Christians understand that the Christian faith is all about um, accepting that new law of Christ and living according to that law in the freedom of Christ. All right, so therefore, that's why he mentions in chapter 1, verse 7, that circumcision cannot save. That's why he says that we are saved um, through Christ and not works of the law, chapter 3, verse 28. And then if you read a little farther, or further on in the text, he's going to be referring specifically to ritual acts such as circumcision. All right. He also mentions that because of this, we who are saved through faith, we do have Christian freedom that means you have the freedom and responsibility to choose good. All right, so freedom doesn't mean I'm free and I can choose to sin as much as I want, and boy, isn't that great. 
because some people were teaching that way. They were saying, well, wait a minute then, if we're not saved by the law and we're saved by Christ, that means that um, Jesus died and rose from the dead, and so his grace is stronger than my sin, so I should sin all the more, because that means that that's going to show the power of God um, you know, to overcome my sin, and I don't need to do anything to change that. No, it was taken to an extreme by um, some Christians, and it was also taken to an extreme by some people who were against Paul, because they were saying that, look, Paul, you can't say that you're saved by Christ alone and through his cross and resurrection, because, you know, that just means you're giving people license to sin um, like crazy people, and, and they, they, need to, they need to not sin. And so, therefore, grace doesn't mean that, you know, Christ overcomes sin so much, it means that we all need to follow the law so we don't sin, and then we accept Christ. You know, so it's just kind of a different... Now, Paul's going to address this later on, and what he basically says is, you know, absolutely not. It's not a license to sin with abandonment. What it is a license is freedom in Christ to choose good. You know, but we're still saved by faith, not by, you know, the Old Testament law. So that's kind of his, his point. So we, we do have freedom... And we have responsibility because of that freedom. And then there's the bigger question that St. Paul tries to address. Well, what about the Jews? You know, what about the Jews specifically that didn't choose to become Christian? You know, how does all that fit in God's plan? And actually, St. Paul has some pretty good, well-thought-out descriptions of that. Um, Let me give you a little little heads-up, I guess, that um, sometimes St. Paul is accused of being anti-Semitic, and he is not. You know, if you, if you really understand the book of Romans, you will see that. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that a little bit when we get into it. And so he does talk about the Jews and their place within God's plan of salvation for all people. And then the last part of the gospel, he has what are spiritual exhortations, and that's just teaching to help people to you know, to love and to live the gospel. All right, so just a basic outline of the gospel. Chapter 1, he defines the gospel. Um, And the end of chapter 1 through chapter 3, St. Paul talks about the universal need for all people to receive the gospel. All right, whether you're Gentile or Jew, you know, all need to receive the gospel for salvation, that all are in need of the gospel. So you can't just say, for example, that, well, the Gentiles need the gospel, but the Jews don't. And so he's going to talk about that. And you can't just say the Jews can have the gospel, but the Gentiles can't. You know, so he's, he's kind of saying all people need the gospel. Okay, so chapters 3 through 4, he talks about the relationship between the gospel and faith. All right, then chapters... Five through seven, he talks about the gospel and the freedom that comes from the gospel. It's a type of freedom that's different than what we often think of freedom as. We might think of freedom as the ability to do whatever we want, and that's kind of the American style, right? I'm free, I can do anything, you know, and that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about freedom from slavery of sin, you know, because if we're sinning, we become a slave to the sin. So he's saying real freedom is to not be a slave to sin, but to have that new life in Christ. And then he he references that within baptism. All right, so then he's got 
in chapter 8, the gospel and life in the spirit. If you want to read a good, like, this is my prayer time kind of chapter, chapter 8's a good one because it's, it's very reflective and very edifying in the faith. And anyway, that's, he's talking about life in the spirit, you know, the, the different gifts and graces the Lord gives us and how we can respond to that. All right, so chapters 9 through 11, that's the gospel and God's plan. You know, some of that just is the overall sweeping plan of, you know, how did God choose to save us? And how did he put this into, into, into his practice? How did God's plan of salvation come to us? And what does it mean? So he talks about that. Then chapters 12 through 13, then he kind of goes back into the, you know, the overall teaching sort of thing, the gospel and Christian life. You know, how our life has changed because of the gospel and some of the consequences of that. And then chapter 14, there's a, um, a teaching to try to keep the Christian community from conflict, and so he talks about the gospel within the framework of community and conflict. And then the last part, chapter 15, he just kind of ties it all together and then kind of you know, gets the loose ends figured out. So there's the uh, pr- promotion of the gospel within the church in Rome. Okay, so just a little bit of background. Uh, First of all, Romans was written before St. Paul went to Rome. That's different than most of the other letters. Most of the other letters St. Paul writes after he had gone to the church, established it, and then went traveling somewhere else. He would send letters to check up on people or to just make sure everything was going smoothly. In this case, he's he's kind of it's a it's a preemptive strike, you know. He's kind of sending it out there so that when he gets there, he'll kind of lay some groundwork for where he wants to go. And it was written. Well, okay, let me go. Let me do the background a little bit more here. Okay, so the history of Rome itself as a city, and you know the Christian, the Christians who came in to settle there, they began to settle around 40 A.D. So this is pretty soon after the resurrection of Jesus. So within seven years, there are Christians who are settling in Rome. And there was also, you know, for the first nine years, the the Christian community was slowly growing within the Jewish ranks. But in 49 AD, the Christians, as well as the Jews, were expelled from Rome by Claudius. So that was in 49, Emperor Claudius, in 49 AD. And so because the Jewish Christians and the Jewish Jews were expelled from Rome. The only Christians who were left behind would have been Gentile Christians. So the leadership basically was taken away from them after that fact. And they're, they're well, what do we do now? You know, the Jews have always been the ones who were the leaders. And now that they've been exiled, then we need to take on some leadership. But can we? You know, and how is the church supposed to look? Do we need to do everything they did? So that started changing some of the dynamics of the church in Rome obviously, because the leadership was changing. Well, the Jewish Christians began to return in 54 AD, but it's been five years now. So now that the Jewish Christians are returning, they're returning to a church that has changed because the leadership has changed. And all the things that were very important to the Jews were not necessarily so important to the Gentiles. And so there's a little bit of this conflict going on. And so you've got some questions about, okay, who, who are going to be the leaders now? Um, what is going to be the style of leadership? And what is going to be the overall teaching? You know, and how Jewish, again, do the Gentiles need to be? You know, and so this is, this is an ongoing issue, of course. 
Um, Paul wrote this letter from Corinth between 56 and 57 AD. All right, so it was a, a few years after the Jewish Christians started to return. The church uh, was starting to mesh a little bit more, um, but they were still struggling with this issue, and St. Paul is, is kind of adding some assistance from the outside. And then later on, he would go to Rome. Probably not in the way that he thought he was going to go, but he ended up going. Okay, so the purpose, it's a more systematic explanation of the gospel that Paul was preaching. A systematic meaning from beginning to end, it followed a nice format. A lot of Paul's letters were kind of all over the place. He, he had a, a certain structure, but he was addressing certain issues, and he would you know, kind of address the issues. Where here, he has in his mind what he wants to do, and he kind of lays it out in a systematic form. He's defending, he's defending his teaching against criticism, criticisms and apprehensions. Because there are people who are apprehensive. Oh, I don't know about this, Paul. This seems too much. Saying that we're saved by faith and the law has no part in our salvation, you know, that would be very difficult for, for a Jewish Christian to accept. And so he wanted to answer those objections. And he also wanted to defend people who would be you know, explicitly against him. Because Paul did have his enemies too. He had people that disagreed with him and, and, and he was fighting with them one way or another, about those things. So he also wanted to, to help the, Christian, the Christians in Rome to have a unity amongst themselves as a church. And he wanted to give them the theological framework they needed so that they could have that unity. And then he also wanted to use this as an example for, for the ability to explain how the non-Jews are included in the family of God as well as the Jews and how that all works. And so it was, it was a pretty big undertaking, really, obviously. Okay, so chapter 1. So St. Paul starts off the, the book, as he does all books, with a greeting. And so every time you hear St. Paul say something like, peace be with you, well, the word in the Jewish context would be, you've probably heard this before, shalom. You've heard that. And that kind of peace means that you are in right relationship with your God, with one another, and with yourself. And so when St. Paul wishes people peace, he's wishing them to be in the right relationship with, with their God, their people, and themselves. And then he just goes in and uses the, the first part to just say, basically, hi, how are you all doing? I hope you're all doing fine. This is Paul. And then he goes and talks a little bit about what he wants to do in this letter. And so... He's, he's doing a little summary of the gospel in verses 3 through 7. And he's saying that, you know, well, you know what? The gospel was predicted. It's based in the death, resur- death and resurrection of Jesus, and it's applied to a life by obedience of faith. All right, so, so in a nutshell, he's, he's basically sending, he's, he's sending it out there, like, this is what I'm going to talk about. And he sets the groundwork for that. He talks about himself as an apostle. You'll hear the word apostle used in different um, times during the gospel, and also, I mean, during the, the letter of Paul, but also you will hear the word apostle used in different contexts throughout a lot of Paul's letters and even in the, in the gospels. The word apostle means one who is sent out, apo, which means out and to be sent. Now, there is the apostle 
like think of it if it helps you, little a apostle, and that's anyone who's sent out to preach the gospel. Okay, but then St. Paul also talks about an apostle like the 12, like the, the more formal apostles like we think. And in this case, he considers himself an apostle as well because he witnessed the resurrected Christ. He was a, a personal witness of this. So he includes himself, actually, even within the 12. All right, so in his definition, he's both. He's the little a apostle who gets sent out, and he's the big a apostle who is one who has primary authority to teach the gospel. Okay, so he also mentions in chapter 1 that all people deserve the gospel. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear this argument, you know, it's like, well, you know, those people over there and, you know, in the woods, you can just leave them. They're okay. You know, they don't need to have the gospel. They don't need Christianity. They're doing fine by themselves. You know, well, St. Paul is basically saying, no, that's not true. Everybody deserves the gospel. It's like, for example, if, if you say, uh, you know, a basic human um, need, right? Everybody deserves food. You don't just say, oh, well, they're starving, but that's okay. Let them starve. You know, they're doing their thing. They're happy. So St. Paul's basically saying that, look, you know, our God gave this to us, and they didn't, he didn't give it to us only. He wants us to be able to give it to all people because it's, it's there for all people. That was the whole point of Jesus coming for all people. And when he talks about all, he's talking about Greeks. He's talking about Jews. He's talking about barbarians. He actually specifically says barbarians. So you know what barbarians are, right? You know the word barba in Latin meaning bearded person? So the uh, bearded ones were the ones that lived outside the realm of the Roman Empire. So, so think like Germany and Scandinavia and you know, up around certain parts of Russia and all that. They considered those the barbarians, you know, because they were the ones who had beards. That's not exactly why they, they're called, you know, that's literally what it means. But, you know, the whole thing about bar, barbarian is someone who is outside of the Roman Empire. So that'd be all those different people. And he also mentions that the educated as well as the ignorant deserve the gospel. So you don't just say, well, only those who are smart enough to be able to figure out the systematic theology you know, have the right to, to have the gospel, you know, everyone has, and that means, you know, people who are like uh, mentally restricted or whatever, that all people have the right to the gospel. Now, the Jews are chosen, as they always have been since the time of Abraham, um, but the Gentiles are recently chosen, you know, so this is, this is different as well, because now the Gentiles have been brought in. And he also says that it's through faith that people are, are being chosen and are part of the people of God and are receivers of the gospel. And he says the upright through faith will live. So what he's quoting there is Habakkuk um, chapter 2, verse 4. So he's, he's deliberately quoting some of these Old Testament quotes to, to show that, look, this is nothing new, guys. That I've been... Um, I've been preaching this, but it's been predicted, you know, even hundreds of years before Jesus even came, that when the Messiah came, this would happen. All right, so then uh, at the uh, end of it, verses 18 through 32, he describes the, um, the need of the Gentiles to have the gospel, and he basically talks about all their immorality and how crazy it is um, when they're left to their own devices 
you know, where that leads them. Therefore, they need the gospel. All right, and he gives an example of that. So he has a list of uh, immoral behaviors. This is, this is actually specifically referring to the Gentiles. So the idea that St. Paul was just giving the Gentiles a pass and saying that, oh, they were fine, you know, it's the Jews who are all messed up, is definitely not true. I mean, read the, uh, you know, those verses. First of all, they did not admit the obvious. You know, there is one God, and he deserves thanks and glory. You know, Paul's saying, look, it's self-evident that there's a God. And people who try to pretend there's not, then they're deluding themselves because it's self-evident. And they, they, they don't admit it. And not only that, they deny the obvious. You know, they need the gospel. And then they're so proud that it leads them to become idolaters. They exchange the truth about the real God with, you know, stupid idols. And, and they mix the creator with the creating, creation. So they worship creation rather than the creator. You know, they're so clouded in their, their thought. And then they give themselves over to impurity, lust, degradation of the body and all of its forms, homosexuality, sexual perversions, wickedness, evil, greed, malice, envy, murder, rivalry, treachery, spite, gossip, and lovers of scandal. All right, so he's, he's painting a glowing picture here, isn't he? He says, they hate God and... They are so insolent and haughty and boastful. They're ingenious in their wickedness. They're rebellious toward their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, heartless, and ruthless. And even knowing in their hearts that there is a just punishment that will be exacted by their God, they flaunt their immorality and encourage others to do the same. Kind of harsh, huh? Anyway, you can tell. It's funny, though, because 2,000 years later, it's still kind of true, you know? That there's this, this weird kind of pride, people who, you know, just, I, I am going to refuse to admit that there is a God, and I'm going to basically rebel against everything godly. And I know in my heart, as much as I profess on my tongue, I know in my heart, there is a God, and I'm going to be held accountable. But I'm not going to admit that. And so St. Paul is just basically saying, look, this is a prime example about why they need the gospel. The Gentiles need the gospel. And then... The, uh, the moral here is that God is self-evident and requires a response. And not just from the Gentiles, but also from the Jews. You know, so first of all, he kind of describes the, the state of the Gentiles, and then he goes in, and he will talk later about the Jewish state of things too. But basically what he's saying is everyone needs the gospel. All right, The Gentiles, even more than the Jews, need the gospel, but everyone needs the gospel. He uses the words... That, that he's going to use to refrain, to phrase this. First of all, he'll say them. All right, the them refers mostly to the Gentiles. He'll talk about you. Now, the you refers mostly to Jews, but not Jews that are Jewish Christians and not Jews who are um, necessarily you know, just the chosen people, but he's kind of referring to this Jew as this imaginary argument. So this would be a Jewish person who believes that you're saved by the law and you really don't need to be saved by Christ because the law itself is sufficient. All right, so this is kind of like this imaginary argument and that's what that you is. So it's this, um, it's this person who thinks that the law itself and alone is sufficient. There's no need for Christ in his death and resurrection. And so um, even if we do have Jesus, 
you know, your understanding of the place of the law and the new law is wrong, Paul. All right, so that's, that's this you that he'll be referring to. Now, when he says all, like, for example, all have fallen short of the glory of God. He's talking specifically there about Jews and Gentiles alike. All right, because think about it in the, in the, in the sense of the argument here. He's, he's, he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. And so if you're going to say all, you're just saying the Jews and the Gentiles. doesn't mean that every single specific person in the world necessarily. He's just saying those two groups, all. You know, one example here is like, okay, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. You know, and you hear that quoted as if, you know, every single individual who's ever been born has, you know, fallen short. Well, that's not true. Jesus hasn't. You know, he was born. Even so, it doesn't really matter so much, just as long as you know that he's talking about two groups, Jews and Gentiles. All right. And so he's saying that, okay, so the Gentiles are messed up, but you know what, Jews? You are too. And we both need Jesus, and circumcision won't save you. See, circumcision is the sign. So it's much more than just the act of circumcision. Um, When Abraham was circumcised, that became the definitive sign of the Jewish people and being part of the chosen people. And so a circumcised person is one who says, I'm circumcised, I'm Jewish, you know, I am under the law, I am a chosen person. And this is when St. Paul says, circumcision won't save you. It's like, ah, what do you mean? I'm a chosen person. Yeah, but that circumcision doesn't mean anything. You know, so these are, these are really uh, difficult words that St. Paul is bringing forth. You know, so he, what he wants to do is he wants to um, show the, the Jewish Christian specifically and maybe the Jews who aren't Christian, because he's writing this to the church, but he's showing the Jewish Christians that they need to understand that by following Christ, it's much more than just accepting him as a Messiah. It's accepting the fullness of the new law which he brings and then conforming your beliefs to that new law rather than trying to take that new law and conform it to the old law. You know, the old wine and the wineskins thing. Okay, so chapter 3, he's going to talk about the advantages of being a Jew. And let me show you this because I think chapter 3 is a good example of how he does this. See, the beginning of of chapter 3, is there any benefit then in being a Jew? Is there any advantage in being circumcised? You know, so here's the, remember the argument? So this is the the interlocutor, the imaginary uh, arguer with Paul. And then he answers the question, a great deal in every way, first of all. And so then he'll go on with his, his, so he's answering his own questions. So in this case, so what's the advantage of being a Jew? And so first of all, well, uh, Jewish Christian, uh, first thing is, you, are, you were the first ones entrusted with revelation. You know, God spoke to you first. You had a head start. In other words, you had all the groundwork laid so that when the Messiah came, you would much more easily be able to understand the significance and what it means and be able to follow him. Also, being a Jew, looking back into history, there has always been a remnant. There's always been a faithful group of of Jews, even in the worst of times. When you look at um, the time after um, the kings, when there was the Babylonian um, captivity and all that, 
it seemed like everyone was going away. And that's, that's what uh, Jeremiah was writing about it. You know, all the people are not doing what they're supposed to do. But there was always a remnant. You know, there was a remnant, meaning a faithful group that allowed the faith to be able to pass on to the next generation, even in the worst of times. So St. Paul is saying that, you know, well, Jewish Christians, you're kind of in line there with the remnant. You know, you're the ones that are holding strong and fast to the faith, and you will pass it down to the next generation as well, just as it's, you know, described in the Old Testament. Okay, so then there was a second question. Well, and, and this one is one that you may have heard too. Well, if God's grace is found in overcoming sin, you know, meaning if I sin, God's grace is demonstrated by his overcoming my sin, then if I really want more grace, I should sin all the more, right? I mean, there is a, a, a twisted logic in that. You know, if I really want to show God's glory, I should sin more, you know, because then God will just forgive me more. And, and I should sin more because his grace will be more evident. You know, just, I mean, if he's going to bring me to heaven because I kicked a puppy when I was a kid, just imagine if, if, I, if I just kind of went crazy, you know, how much more, you know, his power would be shown in that. And anyway, so, so he, he will counter this, of course. But uh, his, his main theological point is that, there is a relationship between the gospel and faith. You know, that, that uh, no human being can take credit for what God has done through Christ. That the various prophets predicted the Messiah. And the benefits of that are fulfilled in Jesus himself. Um, Christ is the fulfillment of the scriptures. We become part of Christ's saving event by grace and faith. All have sinned refers more to personal sin. It's sin of all humanity. And so, by recognizing that we all sin and we are in, in need of God, it, it doesn't mean that we should sin more. It's just recognizing that we do sin and we need God's help. Jesus restores all through faith by what he has done in his death and resurrection. Faith is how we enter into that paschal mystery, um, death and resurrection of Jesus, and uh, that's or the drama of the gospel. In other words, Jesus, when he dies and rises, he brings us into that equation so we also will die and rise. That's kind of part of that. We do that through faith. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, God's righteousness is present even now. And so his righteousness, which we desire, is present and enables us to be more righteous. You know, so we're actually glorifying God not by sinning all the more, but by demonstrating his righteousness working through us. All right, also the righteousness of God is the basis for God declaring and making us righteous. Okay, so this is another um, sort of thing that when, when God makes us righteous, even though we're never going to be perfect while we're on earth here, it is true that we are influenced for the better through grace because of his righteousness. So, so in other words, it's like, let's say I'm the biggest sinner in the world, and then I come to Christ, and I'm still the biggest sinner in the world. You know, well, there's a, um, it, it's, there's a disconnection there that, that shouldn't exist, because if I'm really living out my faith within the Spirit of Christ through the power of the Spirit and grace, then I will be affected for the better, and therefore I will be more righteous, I will be made holy in a greater way, even though it won't be perfectly brought to fulfillment. 
Anyway, it's kind of common sense, but um, he's talking about that. And so do we, you know, do we cancel out the law by faith? Do we make the law insignificant? Do we make the law, um, is it annulled, like it's no longer worth anything? And his response is no, because what St. Paul is doing is he's saying, we want to affirm as Christians the deeper sense of the law, what the law was intended for in the first place and what the law is, is, is there for even today. And that is to point to the Messiah and the saving action that God would take through him. So the law was setting the stage. And then Christ you know, brings about the new law, which the older law, the Mosaic law, brings to fruition. So it's it's a bit of a complicated argument that he's making here, but you know, hopefully you're just kind of getting the gist of it because that's that's really what's kind of important here is just the overall understanding of the law being fulfilled by the new law and restoring us in Christ. So now he wants to kind of say, Okay, so you still don't believe me. Well, let's talk a little bit about Abraham. All right, you all know who Abraham is, right? So the Jewish people considered Abraham the first you know, Israelite, Jew, Hebrew, whatever, they considered, that, they considered Abraham as the first or the father of their people. And so um, for that reason, when he's talking about the law, you know, of course, what, what did Abraham make famous? Well, circumcision, right? That's the mark of the chosen people. And so he is going to be talking a little bit about um, Abraham and saying, okay, so let's take Abraham. You know, what... What made him righteous? Was it the Mosaic Law? Well, wait a minute. Abraham was before the Mosaic Law, right? Because Moses came after Abraham. So it couldn't have been the Mosaic Law. And, and so then, oh, well, maybe it was circumcision, right? Well, wait a minute. God actually called Abraham righteous before he was circumcised. Circumcision was just a sign of the righteousness that he'd received and, and this is all in Genesis, and every Jew would know this. So St. Paul is, is saying things that are obviously true, but it would still be shocking to someone listening to this, considering especially since Paul was a good Jew. You know, so anyway, in this case, he talks about um, this, this idea that the law in the Mosaic sense, there's no separation between the different aspects of the law for a good Jew. You have to follow all of the law. So that includes the moral law, it includes the dietary and the ritual and the commandments, you know, 613 commandments. But all of those should be followed, and not because it was a duty or an obligation that was a burden. They looked at it as this is a blessing that the Lord gives us, and this law is supposed to be followed, so we need to follow it. And uh, by missing, if, for example, if let's say I, I do everything in the law, but I kind of like bacon, you know, then I'm not following the law. You know, because you have to follow the whole law. I mean, that was, that's kind of the point. So you can't just, you know, and that's why it was difficult for people who didn't know the law to be able to follow it. So, but if you knew the law, you had to follow it. So that was kind of the point here. So Abraham was the father of the Jews. Um, incidentally, the, there's this common uh, misconception that Abraham is also the father of the Muslims because they claim that. Now, I say it's a misconception because what they're basing that on is the story of Hagar and Ishmael who went off into Arabia. Um, that may be true, but the, 
the religion of Islam actually began after 630 AD, and there was no Ishmaelite religion that existed for 2,600 years until Muhammad came. It's kind of revisionist history. I'm just saying that you know they may claim their their inheritance from Ishmael, you know, as the Bible describes it. Um, but they really didn't inherit the faith like a long progression going back to Abraham. You know, the beginning of their faith actually was with Muhammad. And real Muslim scholars will know that. But anyway, if you hear that, you know, it's Abraham's the father of all the three religions. You know, it's you know, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It's actually just Judaism and, and Christianity. But still, Abraham is this huge historical figure. And the fact that the Muslims try to claim him show that he's a huge historical figure. So if St. Paul can use Abraham and do it in a way that, that helps to um, solidify his argument, he's certainly going to do it. Okay, so Abraham was justified in chapter 15 of Genesis. Abraham was circumcised in chapter 17 of Genesis. So circumcision did not save Abraham. He was called righteous before circumcision, and that was because God called him righteous. And so therefore, it was not the circumcision that God was rewarding Abraham with. It was his faith that God was really rewarding him with all the, the, you know, the nations, the descendants like the stars and, and all that. So, so if that's the case, what does that say about Jewish, you know, the Jewish uh, context? Are we saved by the law represented in circumcision? Or are we saved by faith? You know, well, if Abraham, who is our father, was saved by faith, then we also are saved by faith. So he's, he's kind of stating the obvious, but he's doing it in a way that's um, just saying that, well, Abraham was before the law, because the law came after Moses. Now, if we're going to claim Abraham, then we should also understand that it's through faith. All right, so now, incidentally, he's not slamming the law, you know, because that's another mistake that, Christians will say, well, you know, you know, there was the old law, and the old law was evil and bad and terrible, and now there's the new law, and the new law is great. You know, he doesn't do that. He just says that, you know, well, even in the old dispensation, you know, it was faith that was important. Circumcision of the heart. You've probably heard that, right? Um, Jeremiah, you know, that, that we're going to have this circumcision of the heart, you know, with that new covenant. You know, or Ezekiel and the new bones, you know, and all this. <laughs> but anyway, this... This whole idea here is that, that there's something greater than the external, more superficial, kind of ritualistic um, type of law. Because what, what Paul's calling them to is the internal law, which was predicted even in the past and shown even in the time of Abraham, that comes through faith. All right, so Abraham's the father of all believers. Abraham's faith was a radical trust in God, and he lived according to that. Abraham's faith was a pure gift, and it wasn't a wage. All right. Abraham was not yet circumcised. Therefore, blessings also apply to non-Jews. Well, think about it, because Abraham wasn't circumcised when he received his blessings, so he wasn't fully a Jew because he wasn't circumcised, right? So that means Gentiles also, even from that point, have the possibility of receiving blessing. Circumcision was a sign of the righteousness he received. All right, so it wasn't like circumcision and then, you know, boom. You know, it's the other way around. 
It's like faith and then circumcision. And the circumcised Abraham also needed to follow the way of faith for its effect. So it's not like Abraham circumcised and all of a sudden he goes, okay, I'm done. You know, No, he got tested even more after the fact. And he continued to be pers- a person, even though he kind of messed up with the whole, you know, Hagar, Ishmael thing. But anyway, he came back. But uh, anyway, so he had to follow that way of faith. Therefore, Christian faith is a saving faith because what you're doing is you're believing in Jesus who was handed over, he was raised from the dead, and raised to new life for our justification. So in other words, what we do is we also, like Abraham, receive those new graces of the covenant by God's initiation and his grace through faith that comes to us pure gift from God. But we also need to have that obedience of faith. All right, like uh, Galatians it says, faith working through love. You know, or I, th- I think it's Romans, the obedience of faith. Either way, they, he talks about this faith as one that's an ongoing demonstrated action. All right, so that means that, so now we're in chapter 5. Faith effects change in us and creates that peace. Remember peace, right relationship, shalom. So that's what it does. It helps us so we can persevere in faith even in hardship. And Jesus died for even the worst of us. So he uses an analogy. He says, it's sometimes heard that someone will die for someone who they love. You know, or sometimes people die for a noble cause. He says, but it's unheard of that people will die for the worst of sinners. Yet that's what Jesus does. You know, that even when we were at our worst, he died for us. So in other words, he's saying there's nobody who's such a bad sinner that, that Jesus considers them not worth dying for because he died for everyone, including the worst of sinners. So that means all of us, Gentiles, Jews, educated, uneducated, barbarians, you know, all are worthy of the gospel. You know, and that, that's why I kind of always respond when someone walks in. They say, well, if I went to church, the church would cave in on me. And I say, well, it hasn't caved in on any of us, and it certainly would have by now, so... What makes you think you're so special, you know? Yeah, especially when we're all together. Okay, so now there's going to be another analogy that he uses. He's going to use an analogy between Jesus and Adam. Um, Jesus and Adam were both sinless, right? Adam was sinless. Jesus was sinless. Of course, Adam sinned, but when he was created, he was sinless. And now Adam brought, because of his sin death, Jesus, because of his sinlessness, brings the opposite of that, life. And then the resurrection means that Jesus' life is more powerful than Adam's death. Considering also that he's God, he's divine, and he rose from the dead, kind of help, but, you know, the law can't conquer sin and death. You know, that's what Adam brought into the human existence, sin and death. But what Jesus brings is life, and sin and righteousness. <laughs> I had to think a little bit there. And so law, meaning the Old Testament law, Mosaic law, can't effect a change in Adam's consequences, the sin and death. But Jesus' law does. Because his resurrection, you know, conquers sin and death and brings us life and, and uh, you know, that righteousness in Christ. And so then, then we have in chapter 6 another question. 
You know, so should we say then, should we remain in sin so that grace may be given all the more? You know, this, this whole kind of thing. Um, to get more grace is to sin more and not follow the law. Right, because what they're saying is, well, wait a minute, the law tells us what's right and wrong, what's good, what's not, and gives us an identity. And so if we're saying the law is, is not worth anything, um, then that means we should sin all the more and this sort of thing. And, you know, well, faith is a license to sin abundantly because all we have to do is believe, right? And you, you'll hear this in the extreme sense that I'm saved by faith, so therefore um, I don't have to do anything. You know, I could just kick back and wait for it to happen. Um, but that's what St. Paul objects to. He goes, no. He goes, we are not slaves to sin, but we are free in Christ to choose good. All right, so there's a difference there. Once again, it's a misunderstanding of what freedom is because true freedom is the ability and um, the freedom to choose what is good. So therefore, when people um, come to you with this idea that, you know, well, I'm an American, I'm free, so if I want to you know, run around and pick up prostitutes and, you know, and get drunk and kill people. I should be able to because I'm an American. You know, that's not being free, right? Or it's like, I'm free to smoke all the pot I want. You know, I might have the ability to smoke all the pot I want, <laughs> but it's certainly not going to lead me to freedom. You know, I'm going to be a slave to the weed. And is weird as that, you can quote me on that. No, it's interesting. I was in Eugene, and we were we went into a head shop that we didn't know was a head shop until we went in there, and and the whole thing, everything on the wall was it was like the glorified altar to marijuana. I mean, it was the strangest thing, and it's like it's like my entire identity is defined according to this weed I smoke. It's the most ridiculous thing when you think about it. You know why someone would let a stupid weed form their identity. You know, you might think I'm nuts, but it's true. <laughs> it's amazing, actually. But anyway, it shows. That's, that's what you call enslavement to a sin, you know, where just over it consumes. And St. Paul's just simply saying, look, you know, we have this freedom. We have the freedom to actually do good. And not only that, because we receive the spirit and the power of the resurrection, we have the grace to be able to do good, not because of ourselves, but because of what God does in us. And then the whole next Ending, well, the whole ending of the, the book of Romans kind of will talk about that. So he says the new law gives way, or the old law gives way to the new law. The old law points out sin, but can't conquer it. So once again, he's showing the, you know, the benefit of the law, and he's showing you know, how the law is a good thing, but he also shows that the law in itself can't complete what it points to. Only Jesus does. And the spirit of the law, which is Jesus, leads us out of sin. It was all part of God's plan, basically. So we are children of God, and that glory is our destination. Um, there is a cosmic dimension to this whole thing. You know, you can think about this new heavens and the new earth, but he's actually saying that it's not just us as people individually, but, you know, the power of the, the resurrection of the gospel um, will actually have an influence in the entire cosmos that ultimately there will be this new resurrection that, or this new heavens and new earth that uh, will transform all things into Christ. Not, you know, it's not like the earth will become Jesus, but it means, you know, all things will be um, purified in him. All things will be resurrected in him. 
And uh, this spiritual aid that we have through the Spirit will aid us in our weakness and in our prayer. So that's chapter 8. If you want to read a good description of the life in the Spirit of Christ, then chapter 8 is a good one for that. Okay, now chapters 9 through 11. These are very important chapters because it explains Paul's take on the place of the Jewish people, specifically those who haven't received the gospel of Christ, but they're still Jewish. So where does all that fit into the plan of God? And so um, this, is a, this is kind of an important thing to understand because a lack of the understanding here has led to um, anti-Semitic persecutions throughout the ages and a real inability for Christians to understand that the Jewish people are brothers and sisters in faith and our elder brothers and sisters in faith. And he, he really does have a good description, but he's still kind of struggling with it because he himself is a Jew. And he starts out saying, I love my brothers and sisters. I love the Jews so much that I even told God I'd be willing to go to hell, the, the pits of hell and, and be tormented forever for their sake, you know, so that they would actually be saved, you know. And so he doesn't mean to say that they're not saved. Therefore, if he went down and did this, that they would be saved. He's just saying, I love them that much. And so, so Paul who is a Jew, is not anti-Jewish. You know? he just, he's trying to describe how does this all fit into God's plan, especially those who choose not to follow Jesus. So he says, first of all, the Jews are still the chosen people. You know, if, if God chooses you, his choosing is irrevocable, meaning it can't be taken away. So when God promises, it's there and it doesn't change. So it's not like God says, okay, Jews, you're my chosen people, and then all of a sudden, eh, I changed my mind. I'm pulling my choosing away. You know, so once they're chosen, they're chosen. So he says that God keeps his promises, that they're the chosen people. And he says, sometimes the elder brothers serve the younger brothers. You know, and he's using he's using references like Esau and Jacob, you know, the idea of there is, you know, there is a precedence in scripture where the older brother actually serves the younger. And in this case, the Gentiles are the younger brother, and the Jews are the older brother. And so this was part of God's plan, that the Jews would be used in a way that they could serve the Gentiles. And actually, he was saying it was predicted anyway. Remember in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, for example, you are the light of the world and the light to the nations, and all these people will grab you by the... um, by the sleeve and say, lead us to Jerusalem and teach us the way. And, you know, he was saying, look, this was all predicted. You know, the Jews are the older brothers who lead the youngers into the faith. Um, Also, he says that there still is a plan for the Jews and everything that's happened is still mysteriously within God's plan. Now, you're not, he's not exactly sure how that's, you know, because he talks about it in a sense of mystery. He says one way or another, there's, there's this plan that the Jews who didn't accept the gospel, for example, um, helped to lead the way for the Gentiles to be able to receive the gospel. Because if, if all the Jews would have just instantly snapped over to become Jewish Christians, it would have been so overwhelming that the Gentiles wouldn't have been able to get their foot in the door. But because there was you know, a little bit of discord going on here, that that opened the door to the Gentiles to be able to come into the church. So God used that situation to help all people to have access to the gospel. So anyway, that was another one of his reflections. And keep in mind that there's still a remnant. 
which once again is biblical, the idea that there still is, you know, a Jewish presence in, you know, the church. St. Paul's talking about the Jewish Christians. And even in our own day, you know, our, our faith actually is influenced by our Jewish heritage. You know, that, that who we are really, if you're looking at it, it's not like the church really began just with Jesus because it, it really goes back, you know, to Abraham, just like the Jews. That, um, and he, in the end of this, St. Paul even refers to the Gentile Christians as being grafted into um, God's infinite plan. So if you think about a tree, you know how trees work, right? You know, if you want to have fruit on a tree, you, you don't just plant the seed and let the fruit tree grow. You, you cut the tree and make a stump out of it, and then you stick other um, twigs into the tree, and then those twigs will grow from the tree, and then the fruit is thicker and better. It's what they call grafting. So all trees, for example, like produce, all these trees are grafted. You look at them, you'll see a cut about a you know a few feet up from the ground, and then that's where they would put another tree in the middle of the stump so that the new tree would grow and produce more fruit. And you know that's why Johnny Appleseed wasn't really effective by throwing a bunch of apple seeds in the ground. But um, what he's saying is, Gentiles, don't get cocky be, and show respect because you owe... Um, you owe the Jews for your ability to be grafted into, you know, the chosen people. So now Jews and Gentiles are both chosen, you know, but we are chosen, we are grafted into, you know, the Jewish faith in a sense. But it's an interesting analogy. But because we've been grafted, we produce more fruit. So if, if we would have just been planted apart, then we wouldn't. You know, we would be um, less fruity. So, So anyway... It is interesting because what St. Paul's saying here is that the Jews still have a place in the plan of God's salvation and that um, that plan ultimately will be that they will come into, um, you know, they, they will come to the gospel eventually. He didn't say when. He, he tended to think that it would be sooner rather than later, but he did also say that, you know, in God's infinite plan, you know, they will come into the faith. In the meantime, they're still the chosen people. Um, they're still our older brothers and sisters in faith, and we should still show them respect and, you know, not get cocky because we're grafted into the same faith. Anyway, it's an interesting thought. So, so kind of think about that for a while, and it's, it, it might be a little different than, than what history is borne out, which is unfortunate. All right, so then the last few chapters... Um, we have chapters 12 through 15, and he is exhorting and teaching. So he's saying, let your lives live the reality of your faith. Um, live humbly and charitably and worship spiritually, but also putting your entire selves into that worship, um, including your bodies. Actually, I just had an email last week. Someone asked me, why do we sit, stand, and kneel during Mass? You know, it's like, well, we worship with our bodies as well as our minds, and so we, we do. We have gestures. We hold our arms out. You know, we you know, lift up your hearts. Okay, well, anyway. But we, we have all these different gestures, you know, and I always kid around when I'm doing funerals because people who aren't Catholic kind of wonder, and I say, oh, it's kind of like Catholic aerobics, you know, stand, sit, kneel. But, but if you watch, for example, the Jews pray, they're always kind of bopping, you know, they're always moving. Well, that's the same thing. They pray with their bodies as well as their minds. All right, so 
At the very end, we have some practical considerations. How do Christians relate to the Roman Empire? Well, he says, be obedient to legitimate authority, but don't deny your Christian principles. Yeah, so how are we to be as, as Americans? You know, be obedient to legitimate authority, but don't deny your Christian principles. Um, the law of love, properly understood, all of the laws included in the command of Jesus to love. You know, so if you really want to summarize it, um, all of the Mosaic law, as well as the new law of Christ, can be summarized in Jesus' law of love. All right, properly understood. You can't just be like, I love you, and that makes everything okay. And then uh, he gives a little bit about his future plans and says that he will be coming to Rome soon. And then he says hi to his friends. Hey, give him a plug. And then he gives a final warning against people who are divisive or destructive. All right. So if, if you've ever been in a church that has been divisive or destructive, it's really annoying. So anyway, hopefully we won't get there. And then later he ends with a prayer. So anyway, that's kind of the book of Romans. So as I mentioned, you can see there's a lot there. So is there any... Are there any questions about it? Anything before we head our merry way? No, he doesn't. Yeah, I don't know if you heard that podcast, but does St. Paul specifically say that people can't be saved if they don't specifically claim Christ as their personal Lord and Savior or something like that? Yeah, because um, he, doesn't, he doesn't really say that specifically. And that's interesting you should ask this question because someone also sent me an email because they were quoting the Council of Florence and there was um, some crazy priest who said that basically anyone who's not Catholic isn't saved. And he said that Vatican II needs to conform to that. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but if you want a good description of that, Vatican II's... Um, document on the church really describes that and they use as a reference the book of Romans in there you know but St. Paul um, says that anyone who is saved is saved through Jesus Christ whether explicitly or implicitly they still are saved through Christ and only in Christ but he leaves the door open um, specifically to the Jews and if you read if you kind of read through there when he's talking about the Jews that don't specifically um, specifically choose the gospel, he doesn't say that they're all going to hell. He's, he's saying that, well, this is mysterious and I don't know how it all works, but one way or another, that's still part of God's plan. And, you know, he's struggling a little bit with that. Um, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't really expound on it later. Of course, he, I don't think he really wanted to. He said all people need Christ and all people need the gospel and Jesus alone is where salvation is found. You're saved through um, faith and through Jesus alone, through grace. Um, but he doesn't say, but you know those little tribes in Papua New Guinea? You know, he, he doesn't do that. So, all right. Any other questions? All right. So um, next week, I don't have class. I know there is a reason for that, and I don't know why right now. But is it the week after that? Is Ash Wednesday, or is that three weeks? We've got, yeah, we've got three weeks till Ash Wednesday. 
Okay, so that means the following week there's class, right? No, there's not, because March 8th is the Tuesday before Ash Wednesday, and then next week is the 1st. I know, I thought the same thing. So we're not going to have class for a couple weeks. So after Ash Wednesday, we'll do something else. All right, thanks, y'all. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's Word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the Scripture. May God bless you.